Hi, this is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Writer John McPhee published his first book in 1965. It was a profile of a man he identified in the subtitle as William Warren Bradley, a Princeton student and Rhodes Scholar who'd go on to star for the New York Knicks and eventually serve three terms as a U.S. Senator from New Jersey. McPhee has published more than 30 other books since then. His latest is Tabula Rasa, a collection of vignettes reflecting upon his writing career and projects he once planned to do but never got around to. We're very pleased to have him as a guest on this episode, where he speaks with Commonweal contributor Tony Domestico. Their conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal podcast. Hi, Tony. It's good to have you here. Hey, Dominic. Good to be here. So I'll admit to a little bit of uh, journalistic envy in that you got the opportunity to speak with John McPhee, who's one of my all-time favorite writers. And the book I referenced in the intro there was, of course, A Sense of Where You Are. But he's written so many other great books. And one of the things I like to do as a New Jersey native is present people with his book on the Pine Barrens. So like I said, I was a little envious of you getting to talk to him. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your conversation? Yeah. So first thing to say is it was a total thrill for me. He's maybe the nonfiction writer who's given me the most pleasure in my reading life. His pieces in the New Yorker are all incredible, but his books are just, you know, unlike anything else, brilliantly structured. And I have a, a good friend named Colleen who runs a bookstore in New Haven. And she said, John McPhee learns everything about a subject and then only gives you the interesting bits, right? And so that's really what all of his all of his books are impeccably researched, but they're also incredibly written. And our conversation was in part about his long career, but it focused mainly on these would-be stories that comprise Tabula Rasa, these ideas that came to him for potential projects, for pieces for The New Yorker, maybe for longer book projects, that for one reason or another, he did not end up writing. So just to give you a, a taste for, for some of these would-be stories, he had an idea that he might write a piece about the fate of physical books, right? What happens to a book once it's out in the world? And he gave some, some great comic examples of the strange misadventures of a copy of his book coming into the country and then another copy of his book looking for a ship. And we talked about that. There are a number of these really lovely, interesting, but ultimately unachieved stories in the book he has a great short vignette about working out with Princeton athletic coaches. His father was the physician for the Princeton athletics program. And he talks about fly fishing with the lacrosse coach. And as a, as a New Jersey person, Dominic, you'll appreciate this. Playing basketball and squash in tennis with Pete Carroll, the famous Princeton basketball coach. Um, and in each of those, when he, whether he was playing basketball, squash or tennis, Pete Carroll always had a cigar in his mouth. So there are just really, in, in many ways, it's just interesting because McPhee has such an interesting mind. But in thinking through the things that interest him, you get a kind of shadow memoir, a kind of shadow autobiography. And McPhee is someone who doesn't write about himself all that much. He kind of disappears into the material, but you can sense his familial life, his interests, and the comedies and misadventures of his writing through this collection. Tony, you mentioned a couple things. I, I'm glad you write that as a New Jersey native. I, I did not really get into fly fishing. That's true. But I'm glad you referenced the book coming into the country, which I have to say is probably my favorite McPhee book. And quickly, yeah. maybe 
Do you have one of your own? You know, it's it's really hard to say. So I was so excited to talk to McPhee when I confirmed that he was going to speak with us on the podcast that I, I decided to try to reread all of his books. As you said, you know, there are more than 30, so I didn't actually get to it. I think I got to like 18 or 19 of them. But I, the Pine Barrens was the, the kind of gateway McPhee book for me. I read that one summer when I was on vacation and I couldn't stop just reading out loud to the people in the room with me, the incredible character sketches and, and details about geography and history. So the Pine Barrens has a, a special place for me. I think just in terms of the greatest distillation of what makes McPhee so singular is his book, Oranges, which is really just about oranges. It's, you know, 200 pages and he talks about the, the history of cultivating oranges, the way it's kind of tied up with European exploration, how it gets turned into orange juice. And, and again, it, it's, it's kind of symptomatic of McPhee's mode of proceeding, which is at the time he said he was commuting. And I think he was in maybe Grand Central or Penn Station. I can't remember which. But you would see that there was an orange juicing machine. And he noticed that over the course of the year, the orange juice changed in color. And he thought to himself, like, like, why, why would that be the case? And, you know, 200 pages later, you get the exhaustive but always exhilarating history of oranges. And it's like a, a cliche about McPhee that, how, you know, how could he make oranges worthy and, and interesting for at that length? But if you haven't read McPhee and you want to see what he can do, I don't know that there's a better place to start than that. Well, we definitely shouldn't delay our listeners any longer. Why don't we take a listen to your talk? Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Dominic. John McPhee, welcome to the Commonwealth Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. By way of introduction, I thought that you might share with our listeners the story you tell in your new book, Tabula Rasa, about the lunch you once had with Thornton Wilder. So what happened at the lunch, what you thought about it then, what you think about it now, and then just more generally, what it has to do with the project that is the new book. Sure. Well, I had an editor whose name was A. Thornton Baker. He was known as Bob, Bobby, and he was some kind of relative of Thornton Wilder. And one day he said to me, come have lunch with Thornton Wilder. And uh, so out we go out of the Time and Life building, which is where I was working, and uh, down to the Century Club where Thornton Wilder was waiting for us. And during this lunch, Wilder talked about what he was working on at the time. And what he was doing was cataloging the plays of Lope de Vega. And Lope, Lope de Vega wrote about something like 1,800 full-length plays, and about 430 survived. And Wilder was going through each of those and doing what you have to do to catalog a 430 full-length plays. So I, who was, you know, I was not, I was pretty young, and I said, why would anybody do that? And Thornton Wilder looked at me, his eyes narrowed, and he, was, he gave me a blistering stare. And he said, young man, never question the purpose of scholarship. But thinking about this, as time went on, I thought I did have a fair question. And, but furthermore, uh, 
I understood a great deal more as I got older what he was up to. He had something to do in his upper years. He really wasn't that old, but he seemed in his upper years to me that he was in his late 60s or something. And he had this project, which obviously would take a long time and would keep him busy. And that stayed in my head for a long time because as I myself got older and everything else, I began to, out of that book, I developed an old man project of my own, writing about pieces of writing that I once meant to do, but never did. Yeah. And you describe your book in Wilder's Project and Mark Twain's autobiography as old man projects, right? Ways of staving off death through work. It seems important to me that you're not claiming in a kind of Shakespearean sense that the work will be eternal, right? That the books you write will be, will have a kind of permanence or immortality. Rather, you're saying that you'll last as long as you have work. Now, yeah. <clears throat> these, these things struck me as a, and furthermore, it's working out. I really am diverted by doing these things. And <clears throat> I'm 92 years old. I think it, it's, it's working pretty well for me. Yeah. And I'm, I was also struck though, when I was looking back at your earlier work, that there was a passage from your 2002 book, The Founding Fish, that actually reminded me of this project and the kind of sustaining effect it's had on you. So that book is about the American shad. It's a kind of cultural and personal history with that fish. And you're talking about how many shad someone can catch in a day, right? And you write, if it's the last thing I do on this earth, I'm going to have a 50 shad day. It's that or live forever, right? And in The Founding Fish and in Tabula Rasa, it seems to me that you're being a bit facetious, right, about the idea that one can put off mortality forever through work. But you're also saying something very serious about the sustaining effect of big projects. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that. What is it that appeals to you now, but also earlier in your career, about big projects, whether it's writing a series of books about the geological history of North America or riding with a chemical tanker from Atlanta to Tacoma. What appeals to you about that kind of a project that you have to invest yourself in over time? Well, we're talking about two things here. One is the earlier pieces I did the over the decades, yeah. the New Yorker with, with, the, with the, the themes you mentioned, and then also the, the current thing with the tabula rasa and the and the short vignettes that i'm writing now and it's very different back then what i did all through the years was look for things to write about as a non-fiction writer who did not want to typecast himself into one field or another but i preferred to find some experts in some field i was interested in and ask them to ask them if I could look over their shoulders at what they do. And that's what I did all the way. And so the miscellaneous nature of my pieces was just constantly looking for something different and new, but always trying to learn on the job from some expert. And also in, in that era, all those decades, the writing was a very tense proposition to me. You have to know what's wrong with your work in order to improve it, in order to do draft number three, four. And so there's a lot of nervousness with that. With these vignettes, which are very short, I don't feel that at all. I'm just, it's very good. It's doing me a, a, a favor as an old man. 
Yeah. And so to give the listeners a little bit more of a taste for the collection, which again is taking stories that you abandoned at one point or another and describing them for the reader, I was hoping that you could maybe tell us a little bit about some of those would-be stories. So you have one would-be story titled Northeast Rising Sun. And I love that. I want to hear you speak about it in just a second, but I I love that story in part because you've talked before about how your father, who was a physician for the athletic teams at Princeton, would drive around in his car saying words out loud to himself, purely for the love of the words. And you obviously have great affection for language as such, for the texture and the music and the resonances of words. And Northeast Rising arises from an encounter with those four words, Northeast Rising Sun. Can you tell us a little bit about when you saw those words and why they almost but didn't quite lead to a story? Well, they appear on a I-95 road sign that's pointing out two towns, as it turned out. But when I first, my my mother and father and, and so on lived in Maryland when they were older and my brother and sister lived in Maryland. So I spent a lot of time on I-95 going down there. And you go by this sign that's right about at the Delaware-Maryland border that says Northeast Rising Sun, just those four words straight across, no, no commas. And I think that's a beautiful line, Northeast Rising Sun. You want to say it over and over again. What did it mean? Well, it, it, and I thought it would make a terrific title. At any rate, Northeast is the town west of the interstate, and or rather east of the interstate, and Rising Sun is the other side. And it's just a couple of towns, that's all. And what I said in this piece about it was that the words entranced me for a long time, and I thought they would make a good title, but they weren't a good title maybe, but not a good story. There, there, there was no real story there. I looked into it, I, I, and I didn't find anything to make it tail out of. So it was just a title hanging up there. Yeah. You also have a lovely series of remembrances in a short vignette in which you write about what happens to some books, and more specifically, two of your own books, Coming Into the Country, which is your great book about Alaska, and looking for a ship, which describes a journey you took on uh, a merchant marine ship. Uh, could you tell us a, a little bit about what happened to those two books? And again, maybe why that didn't end up being a full-length project? Well, each of them was a full-length project in the sense that they're both books of mine coming in and so on. But a guy wrote a letter to me from Fort Lauderdale, and our friend, he told me a story about having been hired to, to deliver a sloop to Gibraltar. And his mother showed up at the boat when he and another guy were about to sail off to Gibraltar and deliver this sloop. And she gave him a copy of Looking for a Ship. And the sloop got caught in a storm and went to the bottom with my book. And that tale unfolds there with, in a kind of amazing way, because when that guy was saved by a U.S. merchant ship, of which there were several thousand on the ocean, the captain of the ship that saved him was the captain in, in my book looking for a ship that he had read, and then it went to the bottom. And the other story was about the coming into the country, being eaten by a grizzly bear in Alaska. When I mean, I gave it to this sent it to this trapper and the bear breaks into his cabin and 
And uh, the book was torn apart and several pages were totally missing. <laughs> I'm concluding that the bear ate the thing. And uh, anyway, that, those were the essences of the things you're mentioning. We'll have more of Tony's conversation with John McPhee in a minute. I'm Ellen Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible. So maybe just one more short piece, if, if you wouldn't mind. You have a lovely piece called Beantown, in which you remember going to Caddy uh, in Wisconsin in the summer of 1947. So again, could you just tell us a little bit about that experience and how it provided the seeds for another abandoned project, a project that you, you might have done but decided not to. Right. Well, the, the abandoned project, uh, I'll get to that. They, they, I went to 1947 and I was... Uh, 15 years old, and I went to Wisconsin for the summer because a boy in Wisconsin who had lived in Princeton had gone home there, and the whole idea was he lived with us to finish sophomore year in high school, and I went out there after junior year in high school, and then thought I was going to work in a pea cannery, but they didn't have any jobs when I got there, so I hitchhiked over to a, a golf course called Tuscumbia and caddied. And one day, after I'd been there a little while, one of the caddies said to me, hey, kid, where do you come from? And uh, so I drew myself up with huge pride. And uh, I said, Princeton. And because, my God, I came from Princeton. And this kid says, oh, Bean Town. Well, it turned out there was a Princeton, Wisconsin, about eight miles further on. And and." <laughs> And but and that I in the piece I wrote in Tabula Rasa that's the lead for talking about Princetons around the country and so on and so forth. It, but that anecdote is is just there at the beginning. And so it, it's interesting that you have this idea for writing a piece about Princeton, Massachusetts, and Princeton, Wisconsin, and all the Princetons in constellation to one another that you decide against. Of course, Princeton, the place where you've lived for much of your life, you you were born there, you went to school there, you went to college there, you have taught there for a long time. Princeton is another through line, not just of tabula rasa, but in much of your actual published writing as well. So I, I did want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. You've written and spoken really interestingly about the importance of structure to you as a writer. You've said that you, when you sit down to actually write a piece, you usually know where it's going to begin and you usually even know the last sentence on where it's going to end. Was that the case at all for these vignettes or were they more improvisational? So each individual vignette, did you sit down and think about it in structural terms or just write and discover your way into the vignette that way? No, yes, it would depend on the one. I mean, there's 35 of them or something. and But definitely, particularly with a longer one, they're structured just the way any long piece would have been structured. And walking the province line, for example, that's a long piece. It's about 3,000 words. And yes, indeed, I think out the structure 
before I write it and, or after I've written a lead anyway. And uh, however, the shorter things are, that's not true. You can just sit down and rip them off. 40% of this book was in, in three different pieces in the New Yorker in the past, in 2021 and 22. And in these New Yorker pieces, I thought David Remnick chose well with the stuff I showed him. And he was picking stuff that was of a length that would be appropriate for the magazine. And so a lot wasn't used by him. But then, and he, he got together the, you know, the six or seven pieces that would be in one thing in the New Yorker. And I liked the, what he did. So this book, without labeling it at all, it's a, this is not said in the book at all. It's just listed 35 different pieces. But the first number are what was in the first New Yorker. And then there's a whole lot of stuff that wasn't in the New Yorker. And then there's stuff that was in the New Yorker and then wasn't. And then, but the whole point is there's a great randomness in this. And that's, that's my fundamental goal. And uh, 60, 60% of this book has not been published before. Yeah. And one thing I'm interested in, in you as a journalist, and I imagine as a teacher, one of the distinctive features of your writing is the generally the reticence with which you write about yourself and your profiles and your projects that in, in draft number four, uh, you talk about spending time with and asking questions of the people you're profiling and you write, I just stay there and fade away as I watch people do what they do. And that's been a hallmark of, of so much of your writing. You're interested in other people, in other phenomena, and you want the reader to be interested with you, but not necessarily in you. And I'm wondering why that removal of the self is so important to you as a writer. Is it a matter of craft? Is it a matter of ethics? Yeah. You could call it what you will, but the thing is, I, I don't think a writer should get between him or herself and the subject. And I believe in the creative reader and that the, the, the writer shouldn't be prancing around in between this reader and the text. And it, the writer should, in, in my view, be involved in the text only to the extent that is absolutely necessary. For example, when I was writing about an experimental aircraft, I didn't appear in this text at all. It was three, a three-parter piece in The New Yorker. And there was just no need for me to mention myself as we went along until with the final flight test, a guy jumped in a session to fly up in the air with the, beside the experimental craft, and I jumped into the Cessna with him. Now, you don't go 500,000 feet in the air with, without saying what you did. And in the New York, the old New York Times would have said a visitor jumped into the, the airplane. Well, I don't like that one either. So I said, I, well, then I turned it into the New Yorker and it's getting ready to be published. And my editor, Bob Bingham says, there's one I in this whole piece. I said, yes, Bobby, that's right. And he said, there has to be at least one more. And he made me stick a, an I in a scene in a gas station in the Chamonix, Pennsylvania, in order to balance the one at the, near the end. I just philosophically feel that way about, about the role of the actual writer. So I thought we might end with, I know that you're very particular about titles. You have a great sentence where you say you, you can wax polemical about them. And 
Very importantly, I think, Tabula Rasa is subtitled Volume 1. Can you tell us why you made that decision? Well, my intention was not to publish these things at all, but just to write them to keep myself going. And, and but then I got I got uh, ambitious that I, I I after writing some of these things I wanted to publish them and I had a dilemma I had vowed not to publish these things but just to go on writing them and uh, so I'm on I'm riding a bicycle with Joel Achenbach of the Washington Post he was in my writing class in 1982 and he taught a course in our program uh, years later and he and I would ride bikes around and so on one of these bike rides I told him my dilemma. And he said, let's call it volume one. And so he solved my problem right, right there because I have a contract with Farris Strauss for volume two, volume three, volume four. The, the, the idea is to keep going. And I thought I would be shutting myself off if I published it. But Joel had the salute. Magic word. I know that I speak for your many readers and saying that we look forward to volumes two, three, and four in the future. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with me today. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Anthony. It was a pleasure for me. John McPhee's new book is Tabula Rasa, and it's available from FSG uh, wherever you get your books. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.